Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits. Hello and welcome to the Indie Cider podcast, where I play indie games and then interview the developer. This week on Indie Cider... Authorial intent doesn't really matter that much. If people are able to come to their own conclusions about what it's about, I think that's that's super interesting. That's Logan Feith, founder of studio Ludoland and designer and developer of Four-Sided Fantasy, a puzzle platformer recently released for Steam and PlayStation 4. A review code for the PS4 version was supplied to me by the publisher, Serenity Forge, who previously developed the game Luna's Wandering Stars, featured on a previous episode of IndieCider. This game, however, is their first foray into being a publisher. The game itself was developed by Logan Feith, a relatively recent graduate of DigiPen and founder of studio Ludoland. Four-Sided Fantasy is a puzzle platformer. In most platform games, the game scrolls left to right and up to down as your character moves about. That is true here as well. However, with the push of a single button, the screen locks in place and becomes wraparound, meaning if you exit the left side of the screen, you enter on the right. You can trigger this ability at any time, allowing you to navigate around puzzles and access areas that you would normally, in a typical scrolling game, not be able to access. As you progress through the game, additional levels introduce other mechanics, usually only one at a time. So for example, in a later level, whenever you pass from one side of the screen to the other, you also move from the background to the foreground, and vice versa. Also, throughout the game, whenever you pass from one side of the screen to the other, you become a different character, either a boy or a girl, whichever one you weren't previously. The game is very bright and colorful. It's not necessarily cartoony so much as artistic, and the soundtrack is also fittingly gentle. It's a relatively artistic, simplistic, fun, short game. And when I say simple, it's not uncomplicated in the sense that these puzzles are easy to solve. There were some that were real head-scratchers because, just like when playing Portal, it's a new way of thinking about space that takes some time to wrap your mind around. I really dug that. This game was funded on Kickstarter, and I'll be speaking with Logan about that Kickstarter project, the way he went about finding a publisher for the game, and how he got matched with Serenity Forge, but most importantly, the design elements of the game and what it is he's trying to convey with certain mechanics and aesthetics. You can find the game at foresightedfantasy.com. That's the word F-O-U-R, not the number four. And you can see the game being played, paired with the interview you're about to hear, at indiesider.net slash 50, because this is episode number 50. Oh my gosh. In fact, this episode is airing in a week that there isn't normally an episode of IndieCider. But I've missed a few episodes along the way. I thought I'd try to make it up to you. And also, there's such a glut of great games right now in September of 2016. There's plenty of material with which to put in a few extra episodes and still have more great games to play. So if you like this game, check it out. If you like the podcast, check it out at IndieCider.net. If you want to send feedback, you can do so at that website or by leaving a review in iTunes or by following me on Twitter at GameBits. Thanks so much for listening. Today I'm speaking with Logan Feith, the lead designer on Foresighted Fantasy over at Ludoland. Hello, Logan. Hi, Ken. How's it going? Great, thanks. How are you? Uh, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Foresighted Fantasy has been years in development. It just finally launched uh, at the end of August. As you and I are recording, it's the first weekend of PAX West, but you are sitting this one out and headed to the Seattle Indies Expo tomorrow. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a little uh, offshoot of PAX. It's not related to PAX, but it's it's nearby, and it's sort of like a, an alternative for the super crowded show floor of PAX. It's like there's free drinks, if I remember right, and it's it's just a small, like, 10, 20 indie games um, that are all, like, 
I think most of them are related to Seattle somehow. Excellent. We have something similar over here in Boston, the annual Boston Festival of Indie Games. I hope your event goes well tomorrow. Oh, thank you. That sounds cool. Foresighted Fantasy is not quite like any game I've ever played. It has some familiar elements. For example, the way that the screen wraps around is a tradition that stems all the way back to classic coin-op arcade machines like the original Mario Brothers. But those games predate you by at least a decade. So (laughs) where did your inspiration come for these unusual game mechanics? Yeah, um, well, so the the initial thing that sparked it um, was if you've ever played the game uh, VVVVVV, it's like a gravity-flipping game. Love that game. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. And if you remember, there's a part in the middle, it's, or it's just somewhere randomly in the in the game, and it's just like five minutes long. Um, but just all of a sudden, you enter this room, and instead of normally, it's like um, um, normally the game is more retro, and it's just like it's not a scrolling camera; it's room to room. So once you get to the side of the screen, it pops you into a new room. But in this one section, instead of popping you into a new room, it just wraps you around to the other. It just uses screen wrap. And then you have to find like the right area to go to actually, you know, move to a new room. And so that got me thinking, I was, I was just thinking like, well, that's weird. It's just all of a sudden did that in the middle of the game. What if you could, you know, just what if you could actually just turn that on whenever you wanted? Um, and so I, I prototyped it for a student project when I was at um, college. Um, and it, I just kept going, working on it. It was um, worked out really well. Um, and so Four-Sided Fantasy is sort of a spiritual successor to um, the student project that I did years ago. And that college you went to was DigiPen, and that project was The Fourth Wall, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did you expand upon that concept for a full-fledged game? How does Four-Sided Fantasy differ from The Fourth Wall? Yeah, so I think the, the first immediate thing that the players will see is that um, the art um, and music are are stark. <laughs> they're they're way different than they were in the original <laughs> prototype. Um, I I really like the art in the in the original prototype, but um, in Four Sided Fantasy we put a lot more time into it. Um, we actually had a budget, <laughs> um, that sort of thing. So um, in the fourth wall, the art was sort of like the the standard like there were a ton of black and white puzzle platformers in our game <laughs> the original prototype was a black and white puzzle platformer um whereas four sided fantasy i was just sick of like i didn't want to do a drab black and white game again <laughs> um and so uh we went to the complete opposite of that it's super saturated um super colorful with like these um sharp angles um, but it's still got like a dreamlike quality to it. Um, and, and then um, the other way we expand upon it is as you get further through the game, essentially um, we put different twists on the core mechanic. Um, so for example, just one world is um, normally you just screen wrap. Um, and then in uh, one of the worlds, it's like foreground and background. So every time you screen wrap, you'll, you'll go into the background or into the foreground, like switching between them. Um, and so there's a, there's a bunch of different worlds that um, have a twist on the mechanic. 
Yeah, when I was playing the game throughout the first world, I was really enjoying the mechanic, but in the first 10 minutes or so, obviously it focuses on that introductory mechanic of the screen wrap, and I was wondering how you were going to keep that interesting for a full game. (laughs) And then I start getting to the other worlds, and they behave completely differently. Or so it seems. Like I, I mean, they can't be all that different. So what would you say is the theme that ties all these mechanics together? It's not just screen wrap. Yeah, I, I guess it's not. Um, because especially the last world or two worlds, I don't know if you would consider them two different worlds or, or just one and a half or something like that because they're, they're slightly different at the, the last two worlds. Uh, but uh, I guess the way I sort of thought about it was um, what's the logical extension of like making a game about the screen itself? Um, and so um, the the last world, for exa- example, um, is um, it's split screen. Um, but it's, so it's like a two player split screen game. But instead of being two player, it's single player, and you can jump between the split screens. Um, and so that the screen wrap's still in there. Um, if you go on the edge of the screen, the actual edge of the, the screen. Um, but that was sort of like the logical extension of like, okay, what could I do if I re- like the game's not necessarily about screen wrap. It's about the actual screen and what we can do with the, the borders of the screen. Were there any mechanics that you conceived of that you weren't able to implement in the final game? Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Really? T- can you share some of those with us? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think part of, like an inherent thing from for me in game development is that stuff will get cut in development, um, and so two of the big ones we sh- we actually showed in the Kickstarter. But I made I made sure to emphasize that like these are experimental. I didn't want to promise them in the final version because I I know that things will get cut. Um, one of them was the ability to rotate the camera, and then you could lock the screen. And that was that was really cool, um, especially because I um, eventually mapped it to the time of day. So when you rotated the camera, it did like a time lapse, which was really neat. But um, it turned out to be kind of kind of a nightmare programming wise. And also, I, I kind of felt that it was well, one, it was it was too over overpowered. Like it was really hard to make puzzles for just because it was like, well, you can just rotate the camera. Um, and then the other part of it was just that it wasn't like, I wasn't finding it that fun or I guess it it wasn't that it was that, um, players were having a hard time understanding because like I was having a hard time understanding. I was like, wait, how am I supposed to program this? Where, where should this wrap to, um, that sort of thing. Um, and then the other thing, the split screen that I mentioned before actually sort of originated as a two player co-op split screen and we had to cut that pretty early on because it was it was pretty pretty complicated design wise and programming wise um and it, it was one of those things that i really wanted to get in but i was i recognized i didn't think it was impossible but i recognized that we didn't have the time um to make it as good as i wanted it to be while making the rest of the game and so i was just like we we got to cut it um uh, but I also really liked the split screen. I was like, "This is great!" Um, so I, I pared it down to be the single player, uh, the the single player split, split screen that you see in the game today, which was kind of a, like a happy, happy little accident. 
Well, that's great because it means that your prototyping wasn't all for naught. It inspired the mechanics that actually did become part of the final game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess another thing that didn't make it in is um, related to that two-player split screen. If you've ever played the Lego um, game, uh, like Lego Star Wars and stuff like that, um, in the in some of them they have in two-player co-op they have a split screen that's dynamic where it it's really weird. You kind of have to see it in action to to fully understand how it works. But it's basically if you're all in the same area, it will be but it won't be split screen. Um, and you're still playing two player. But then if you venture off like in separate directions, it like seamlessly splits it into two screens. And it doesn't just do like vertical or horizontal like most games. It's dynamic, so like rotates the line in the middle of the screens. It's really weird. And I, I wanted to get that in, but that was something where it was like I didn't even bother doing that. Like on a technical side, I was like, I don't even know how I'm going to do the the rotating. Like I wanted to do dynamic, but then like the rotating part, I was just like, I have no clue how to do this. So you said that this is a game about the screen and I can see some of those meta elements appearing, like the way the screen curves a little bit and the way that there is a recording icon in the upper left hand corner as if mm-hmm. somebody is watching the gameplay on the screen w- what is all that about like is <laughs> is this supposed to represent some sort of a breaking the fourth wall perspective yeah i guess so one thing is i wanted that to be like a, a background detail um like um sort of in the vein of like adventure time i really like um in adventure time how that world is set in a poco or a post-apocalypse world but they never, or maybe they reference it later on. I don't know. I haven't kept up on it. But initially, they never talk about that. It's just like, oh, this kid and his dog on these adventures. And it happens to be like, if you catch, if you actually like think about the backgrounds, there's like a crashed, destroyed helicopter in the background. And you're like, well, that's weird. And so I, I was sort of trying to do something similar where it's like, it's not core to the story, but it's just sort of this background detail that it's kind of fun to notice. Um, as you play through the game, sort of the the impetus behind it is, um, and it sort of also it goes back to the original prototype, the fourth wall, um, which was, well, I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> um, but the yeah, all the screen stuff is basically my thinking that the um, mechanic in the game doesn't make sense unless someone is watching it. Like to the characters in the game, it doesn't make sense. They're just there's no edges of the screen because there's no there's no screen, <laughs> you know, in, in their world unless someone's watching them. And so it, it was sort of to contextualize that that um, fact that it's like, wait a minute, this doesn't actually make sense to the characters in the game. It only makes sense to the players playing it. No, that makes sense. What, what about the timestamps? Is that supposed to represent the passing of seasons or are these specific points in your own life? Is this autobiographical? <laughs> it's it's not autobiographical it is um yeah it is meant to meant to show just like the passing of of the seasons and um because the game takes place over a year um and that's represented in the actual art and environments but i wanted to kind of bring that further and and show like for players that are that are like keeping track of it to kind of have that little detail like okay time is advancing as you're playing through the game but except for that timestamp and the recording icon, as far as I've discovered so far, 
that is the only instance of language throughout this entire game. There are no words, no signs, no posters, nothing. Mm-hmm. So are you telling a story in this game? And if so, how do you tell that story without words? Yeah, um, so I think that's, that's one, one area that is pretty minimal in the game. Yeah, we, we intentionally avoid um, using, using a lot of words and being, being super wordy in the game. Um, and basically the, the um, attempt was to sort of, I, I don't know if it, I would say like a traditional story. Like when, I, when someone talks about story in a game, it's usually like, okay, there's cutscenes and like characters talking to each other and stuff. And, and this is sort of a different approach where it's very minimal and the gameplay is supposed to the the different worlds and the different twists on the gameplay are supposed to represent a sort of minimal story and progression and of course every story has to have its characters and this game has two the boy and the girl later on the game i can see how that is a useful reference for which direction gravity is going for example but early on the game it seems almost arbitrary what is the significance of the fact that the character changes gender every time it goes off the side of the screen um yeah so uh, essentially the the game is about these two characters and sort of their um relationship or how they relate to each other um and so for it um yeah so i i, I guess that that <laughs> i don't want to be too specific about it to to spoil it for for uh listeners but um yeah it's it's sort of just the way they change the the swapping happens is supposed to represent um, like a minimal little story as you progress through the game. Because my first interpretation was that this was a game with one character who changes genders. Oh, gotcha. Um, yeah, that's it's an interesting interpretation. I, I kind of like um, realized that partway through. It's not, I, I, I want to say it's not the intended what do you call it? Uh, it's not the intended interpretation or, or story, but at the same time, I think that authorial intent doesn't really matter that much. Um, like, I, I think it's super cool if someone can come to a game and connect with it, even if it's, you know, not my intended story or not my intended solution or, or not solution um, interpretation. So, yeah, I, I think that that's something that I, I feel strongly that if people are able to come to their own conclusions about what it's about. I think that's that's super interesting. Oh, that's great. I love that because kind of like Clark Kent and Superman, I never see these two characters at the same time. <laughs> and so I, I was just wondering what their secret was. All right, so we've been talking about the design of the game. Let's talk a little bit about the development, specifically starting with the relationship with Serenity Forge, the publisher of this game. How did that relationship come about? Let's see. I met them. I was showing at um, Denver Comic Con. Um, it was like two years ago, I want to say like something like that. Um, and we are, we ran a Kickstarter a little while before that. Um, and we were successfully funded. Um, and then, so once we got, once we were showing at Denver comic-con, we, uh, ran into the guys at Serenity Forge. Um, they were showing their game as well at Denver comic-con. Um, and they, they came by and we're just like, Hey, we're backers. Uh, we really like your game. And we started chatting about it. Um, and they're really cool. I like the work that they're doing. Um, and so we just kind of kept in touch after that. Like we didn't even talk about publishing or anything like that. It was just sort of one of those things, you know, 
game developers, you meet at conventions a lot of the time, you'll just keep in touch and be like every, you know, every pack or whatever you hang out, get dinner or, or something like that. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just sort of like that for a while. Uh, you know, we would meet up at packs and stuff like that. But then we, so we had a, we had a publisher at the time, but unfortunately that um, eventually fell through. Um, we just sort of didn't see eye to eye on like what we wanted to do with the game. Um, and uh, that initial publisher, they're really cool. I don't have any ill will towards them. It just didn't really work out. Um, and so I was sort of looking for a publisher again and I was reminded of Serenity, for- Serenity Forge. They had talked about that they wanted to get into publishing because they normally just do development. And so I, I, I talked to them and um, was like, hey, I'm looking for a publisher again and um, just sort of went from there. They're, they're like, yeah, definitely. Let's let's talk. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's how it worked out. From speaking with Z at Serenity Forge on a previous episode of this podcast, I came to understand that Serenity Forge has a very specific philosophy about what it is they're trying to do with games. How does Foresight Fantasy fit into Serenity Forge's philosophy? So one thing I've, I've found really interesting is that um, after, after we launched the re- different reviews that we have been getting for the game, um, I've been just talking about how it's the game is like super relaxing. One review said it was therapeutic to play through. Um, and I think, I think it fits in um, just because it's like, I, I, I don't know before those reviews, I didn't, I couldn't really put a word on it or like, I didn't really have a specific, I think subconsciously I was trying to make like a relax, relaxing game, but I didn't really consciously think that. And I think that's part of it is just that it's just a relaxing, chill game to play through. You know, it's not, you're not going to beat your head against a puzzle forever, you know, and, and get super frustrated. It's, it's just meant as a sort of relaxing game that make you know, it makes you think, um, and you kind of discover, you discover a lot of things about how the screen wrap works or how, how the mechanic works. Um, and it's just sort of, you know, a good, Good relaxing time. <laughs> now, nowadays, with so many different tools and platforms and outlets available, it's pretty easy to self-publish a game. What prompted you to seek a publisher as opposed to going it on your own? Initially, we didn't we didn't want to go with a publisher. Um, when we did the Kickstarter, we were approached by a lot of publishers, um, and at first, I was just like, yeah, "That's that's not a great idea. Like, we I don't see why we need a publisher." And then eventually that first publisher, that first publisher contacted us and basically pitched to us that they were, they were willing to do console versions. Um, and we had never really thought about console versions. I don't have experience with like going through console cert or anything like that. And then, uh, that, that was, so that was sort of convincing of just like, Oh wait, we could do, we could do console. That would be pretty cool. And then eventually when that publisher fell through, um, when we went back and talked to Serenity Forge, um, consoles were part of the deal still. So I, I think that was the consoles were definitely a big part of it. Of like, I didn't, I don't even have a developer kit for, for PlayStation 4 or Xbox One. Like I, I don't um, need to worry about 
you know, any of the porting um, so I can focus on the actual development of the, the game itself, um, which is really nice because I'm not, like, I do all the programming on, or most of the programming on Four-Sided Fantasy, uh, but I'm not, I, I'm more design-oriented. Like, I, I enjoy the design part more, so, like, having to worry about, like, programming for console-specific stuff, I, I did not want to do. Um, so I was, I was super happy that I was, I was able to just focus on the game itself. Um, and then the, the other part of it was um, the marketing aspect and like public outreach. I sort of thought I had um, like a, a good enough base of like journalists I've talked to and stuff like that. But Cerny Forge has done way better <laughs> than I could have. Um, you know, they've, they've shown at conventions that I wouldn't have been able to like they they showed the game at e3 for me and like i would have never gotten it into e3 because it was like it was with multiple booths like one of them was a sponsored booth with for like a controller manufacturer like i would have never thought of that um so that's the other part of it that, that helped a ton speaking of porting it to consoles i understand that you originally hoped to release the game on vita what happened to that that was in the initial deal with that that first publisher that i mentioned um and Going over to Serenity Forge, that was just unfortunately one thing that we had to, you know, look at again and go, okay, what are the consoles that we really need to do, and what, you know, what one can't we can't we afford either in time or budget? Um, and Vita was just one of them that we we're like, man, we wish we could do this for the the Vita fans out there, but um, it it just wasn't it just wasn't in the in the time frame. All right, let's talk about the Kickstarter a little bit. This game, this Kickstarter closed in May of 2014 with over a thousand backers and almost thirty-eight thousand dollars. Congratulations, by the way, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I'm curious to know two things. One is that most Kickstarters end up underestimating how long it'll take to produce a game, and this Kickstarter estimated that it would release in February 2015, as opposed yeah. to the reality of August 2016. <laughs> don't remind me. Don't I'm sorry. Me. I mean, <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> No, that's fine. That's okay. I'm just joking. <laughs> the good news is that it was worth waiting for, but I'm curious to know, were there obstacles other than funny a publisher that contributed to that delay? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a ton of things, but the biggest thing is just the, the switch from making games at a school to making games when you have to make money, <laughs> essentially. Basically, I, I took I think I took for granted a lot of things that made me motivated and made me super productive while I was at school. It was it was just stuff as simple as like at school there were you know, there were a ton of like minded other people making games that I was I was working around and so that, that made me more productive and after I graduated I was working at home for a while and like that can just like kill your producti- productivity. It's just like super demotivating. Not just it, it just because it's like not an office. Like it, it's important, I think, to separate the space that you work at and the space that you go home to. But after going through a few different co-working spaces, I finally found one that I really like. So I think I'm in a good working space now. The other part of it was just like I guess the the sort of I don't know uh, what the word is like tertiary or, or secondary parts of that that work-life balance of like I was walking to school every day when I was in school um so I got my exercise (laughs) it turns out like if you're not exercising regularly it's you know 
kind of demotivating depending on depending on the type of person you are or or just like it you know you're just less productive um and so like trying to find another another way to actually have that um being able to exercise and and um working that into your daily routine i think was another part of it yeah that can be very important that some people when they are focused on a uh, mental challenge such as creating a game they neglect the other aspects of their well-being and it really takes a well-rounded individual to fully engage in any creative task yeah and i i've, I've always said this and i still maintain this is the case the hardest part of making game, games is the part where you're not making games like everything else is everything else getting in the way when you're not making the game is, or like stopping you from making the game it, those are the hardest parts like i can you know, making a game, I, I love doing it, but just like everything around it, you know, real life <laughs> responsibilities like that all just like those are the hard parts, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Now, also on Kickstarters, it's pretty traditional to offer copies of the game, uh, maybe some sort of a feely or extra bonus like a scarf or a book or a hat or a shirt. Sometimes people even get producer credit in the game or their names in the game. But your 5,000 level tier was that somebody would actually get to design a level. You gave up some creative control of the game for $5,000 and one person took you up on that. Can you tell me what it was like working with one of your own supporters to create a level? Yeah, so it was actually basically a, a very generous backer um i believe because um we contact we tried getting in contact with him um several times and um i i think he was just uh, um i mean i i know who it is um and i know that it's a very busy person who i think was just being um being very generous um, and, and so I think it was, um, just, yeah, we, we never got, got in contact with him. I don't, I don't think he actually wanted to, um, design that level. It was just a, a case of a, a very generous factor. Wow. That's awesome. And at the, t- at the, and at the $10,000 level, which nobody took you up on, they would have gotten to design a character and there are only two characters in the game. So how would that have worked? Um, yeah, we kind of left it open so that, um, at, uh, so that we had, Basically, um, we we kind of had options if we wanted to. We could have had we um, since you know like starting out, it's just so like things could go any direction. Um, so we we left it open to be okay. Maybe it's a character that you could turn on, um, like as a as a in the options or something like that. Um, or um, maybe it's only for this this specific backer. That wasn't a great I, like that wasn't a great option, but it was still like a possibility. Um, maybe it was a way to yeah, just like have it as an unlockable or like a a secret um, or a cheat or something like that. So that was yeah, we 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 sort of left it open so that we had a lot of different different options for how we wanted to approach it. And the other thing is that. Um, the two character swapping came after the Kickstarter. Um, we initially didn't have that in mind, um, but eventually we found that was how we wanted to pursue the game. Um, so the yeah, the character swapping thing was uh, came into it later. So that was definitely something that um, probably would have been a challenge to integrate, but we definitely would have kept with it, kept at it. 
Well, it's for the best. You got to stick to your creative uh, vision, and now the Kickstarter is complete. The game is out. What's next? Um, so, well, so right now, in the very immediate future, um, I'm working on bug fixing and patches. Um, it's, there, there's a lot to do. Um, and just, like, public outreach and just, like, you know, um, making sure reviewers get copies in their hands and stuff like that. But in the future, um, I can't say too much about it, but I'm working on, um, I'm working on, I guess not right now. I'm not technically working on it, but, um, over the past few months in my free time, like every, every week, once a week, I've been working on a, a game that's a first person puzzle game. Um, I can't say too much about it yet, but that'll be, I'll be announcing something at some point um, down the line. You previously worked on a first-person game called Perspective, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe some of the design lessons you picked up from that experience will carry over into whatever your next project might be. Potentially. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I look forward to hearing more about this game when you're able to talk about it. In the meantime, remind our listeners where to find you and Foresight Fantasy online. Yeah, uh, foresightedfantasy.com is the website for the game. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm uh, at lofi, that's L-O underscore F-I underscore. Very good, and there will be links to those in the show notes at indiesider.net. Logan Fief, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ken. This has been IndieCider, a Game Bits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at indiesider.net.